Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter, Built by Scott, and Instagram at King O'Kane, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. If you're in human performance today, you recognize that the industry has changed. Gone are the days of highly focused specialists who live in their isolated lanes, working without the understanding of the whole human being. The world of human performance is about integration today. It's about recognizing what your client needs to do to perform at their highest potential, discovering the parts of the puzzle of performance that need work, while keeping this person moving, training, performing, and succeeding seamlessly. Reconditioning is an operating system for this new world of human performance. The practice honors the role of each specialization and helps define the most powerful and tactical use of interventions that will make a difference. You don't take your car to the garage only when it's broken. You schedule for regular maintenance so that it keeps running smoothly when you need it. The human body is no different and reconditioning professionals are those best prepared to keep the human body running. Check out our courses at ReconditioningHQ.com today. Follow our robust educational programming and become the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. It's been four years that Leave Your Mark has been up and running. And during these four years, uh, we've had a fantastic podcast sponsor in Matrix Fitness. I have to thank Greg Lawler for his commitment to this podcast and his commitment and his team's commitment to what we're trying to do is helping you in the community see and listen to some of the best in the business of human performance. And to talk about the best in the business, well, right back at Matrix Fitness, they are the best in the business at what they do, and they serve uh, the continuum of human performance from the day-to-day person who is looking just to stay fit and, uh, and to aspire to be healthy to the person who wants to be out uh, performing at their best in an athletic endeavor. They have all the equipment that spans that continuum. They're ready to help you, the practitioner, or you, the person who wants to build your at-home facility or a facility or an institutional facility to have success with your clients or with yourself. So I encourage you to take a look at their products. Head over to teamupwithmatrix.ca today and check out what they're doing. They have outstanding equipment and outstanding customer service. So once again, thank you to Matrix for supporting Leave Your Mark and take some time today to check them out. Wow, what's going on at ReconditioningHQ.com these days is insane. Uh, you can find the entire R1 Foundations course online and available to digest at your leisure. The R2 Designs course is right there as well, fully loaded. R3 Collab is a combination of online material all about the neurological system and then a live laboratory where we dive deep on everything reconditioning. These three courses walk you through the process of reconditioning all the information and what we've done now is we've attached to all of this a mastermind community and when you're in the mastermind community it's 20 bucks a month uh, and you have access to weekly meetings that we're going to be doing on case studies 
all kinds of gem material from things that we've done, uh, guest presenters, guest interviews. We have Matt Jordan coming up in a few weeks, Nick Ward from Altus coming in a few weeks as well. So we've got some outstanding people coming as guests in the future. We are basically in that mastermind combining uh, revolving eight-week labs for each of those courses. So they're cycling through. We're going to do eight weeks and take a break to another eight weeks. So if you're in R1 and you want to come in and learn while you're in the mastermind, we have meetings once a week for an hour to go through the material. So it keeps you accountable, allows you to touch base with what you've learned, ask your questions. It really allows you to dive deep on all the information. On top of that, because the world is starting to open up a little bit, we are going to have our first live lab in Montreal, May 14th, 15th for R1 Foundations. And effectively, what we're going to do is when you purchase a course, you have all that material online. You have access to the mastermind and the community material and the community learning. And then you can come with to this meeting on the weekend for two days and just dive deep on how to play with all the information. And so it's not a, a, a teaching lab as much as it is a learning lab, a trying lab, a context lab. And that's what we've got uh, big time for everybody these days. And then on top of that, the International Hockey Performance Summit is pivoted to virtual June 10 to 12. All the powerful content, we have kept it all in there. We've revised the curriculum. You can go online, take a look at it. The SCAF Summit pre-summit is going to be there too. So three days of incredible information is going to be available to you. If you have an interest in hockey performance or foundationally the people People who are speaking at this thing are the top of the world at what they do. So you're going to take away whether it's hockey related or just training and performance related. It's there for you. So come and join us uh, virtually. It's all there for the taking. And then on top of that, if you are interested in ski performance training and you want to learn to train to train uh, or train to compete with your athletes that you're working with off snow, I am doing a ski program, a workshop on April 23rd, 24th in Mont-Tremblant, Quebec. It is also virtual as well. So it's live and virtual. It's a hybrid event. You can jump on that and that's available right now. Going to be dropping the hammer on that April 23rd, 24th. So uh, look forward to having you with us in anything we're doing reconditioning today. Head over to reconditioninghq.com to check out all our offerings. As an avid listener of the Leave Your Mark podcast, I'm sure you recognize the process that I take our guests through in learning about their lives and understanding what it is taken for them to become the professionals and the successes that they've had in their lives and effectively there's a lot of learning that we go through and everybody that I talk to talks about mentorship and influential people in their lives and the podcast has always been my offering to the community at large uh, for you to see and learn from the insights of others. But now what I'm doing is uh, at the beginning of May I am launching the Leave Your Mark Life Lab, and this is going to be my stewardship process for helping you become the professional you want to be through mentorship, through reflection, through directed conversation, giving you skills, providing accountability, 
and talking about your progress and inside a group of people who are all trying to do the same thing, providing you with a, a lens uh, of, of reflection on yourself and the things that you want to accomplish and recognize that you need to put as much into yourself as you do into others. And this industry is crazy when it comes to us taking care of everybody else but not taking care of ourselves. So I want to change that. That's what the LYM Life Lab is all about. I encourage you to head over to the Leave Your Mark website, which is lymlab.com. Check out what we're offering in the LYM Life Lab section. You can also download two free videos that I created that are a starter kit to this process and looking at creating change in your life. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, hey, grab yourself a hat while you're there because Leave Your Mark hats are sick lids if I do say so myself. And lastly, I want to uh, invite you to check out the latest episodes and please take the time to go over and leave a comment, leave a rating on your favorite streaming service because it helps us get out to more people. So without further ado, let's get on to the podcast. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Sam Robertson. Sam is a sports performance researcher, innovator, and consultant. He leads the sports research program at Victoria University in Melbourne, Australia, working on areas such as decision-making, analytics, technology standards, and applications of complex systems. Sam has published over 140 scientific papers and worked with a range of sporting organizations, including FIFA, the San Antonio Spurs, the Australian Football League, Kansas City Road. Barcelona Innovation Hub, the Western Bulldogs, and in Tennis Australia. Sam is married to his wife, Adriana, and above all else, is a father of three kids, Emily, William, and Anna. I am pleased to have him on the show today. Welcome, Sam. Thank you, Scotty. It's uh, fantastic to be here. I'm looking forward to, to speaking about all those things. Well, some more than others. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully about your kids or <laughs> that you think of them in a good way <laughs> while you're away from Correct. <laughs> correct. Correct. Of course. I have to say that whether it's true or not, but it is true. It is true. <laughs> well, you came highly recommended by David Joyce and, uh, was, and uh, I'm glad you accepted my uh, invitation to come and chat. As I said to you before we get on, it's a uh, a bit of a life journey podcast and you've obviously had a a very uh esteemed and, and interesting career I, I really love the take on the music side of things so i'm going to uh, get into that fairly early on but uh tell me about where where did you grow up and and what was sam robertson dreaming about being when he was a little boy well you've you've covered it there i i think from as young as i can remember i i wanted to be a musician but i i grew up in the Mornington peninsula in the south of Australia, almost as far south as you can get on the mainland. I need to make sure I made that clear. We forget about <laughs> Tasmania sometimes, but on the mainland. And funnily enough, I, I live there again now. Uh, it took me all around the world for a little while, but I, I am back there, which obviously happens to a lot of people. But it's a little bit different to what it was when I grew up. It was a, a very kind of beachside coastal community. It, it still is that, but it's uh, freeways and the like mean that it's about an hour for people, you know, the six million people or so in Melbourne to to come down on the weekend. So it's still a great place, but it's a lot busier than it was when I was growing <laughs> up. But but yeah, I mean, it's a big music scene down there as well, and I think uh, yeah, that probably influenced my my want to be involved in that. 
unfortunately everybody finds these little secret places eventually and then monopolizes them and <laughs> turns them into something else that they they weren't before but <laughs> it's it's true it's it's all over the world it's the same and you've kind of got to be there in that time of history where it's not been ruined i mean i shouldn't say ruined but yeah you know what i mean yeah changed for sure so um music wise who was well what music was influencing you when you were a kid what were you uh excited to listen to it's it's funny you say that because I maybe maybe not so much an old soul, but I always had a couple of generations or a couple of decades difference between the music I listened to growing up. Uh, so I listened to a lot of rock music. I started as a guitarist, and uh, funnily enough, I I now play about four or five instruments. But at the time, guitar was really all I was interested in. So I I loved all the stuff that was about guitar. I loved Van Halen and Led Zeppelin and all these kind of bands that uh, went well. Van Halen was still around, but they they weren't really as big as they were when I was growing up. I'm showing my age a bit now, but as I've got older, I think my music taste has got has also gotten older with me. So yeah, as I've kind of gotten older, I've started listening to more things from even the seventies, uh, which is at the time didn't sound like long that long ago, but now is fifty years ago if you can believe that. So, did you have mu- music circulating? That like, do, did your mum and dad play a lot of music? Is that what's kind of influenced you, or you kind of discovered music on your own? You, you know what? It's it's. It, no, it wasn't never a major part. I mean, they certainly were really encouraging me to to get into music, which people that know me would, they're often quite uh, surprised by that because I, you know, I can be accused of being quite dry and objective. And I mean, that's the data side of my work, I suppose. So that's been my creative outlet maybe since I was a kid. But yeah, I mean, I remember getting my dad's Van Morrison records out and and these types of albums and Frampton Comes Alive and everyone had it, right? Um, so I remember listening to those, but, it, you know, they weren't musically, uh, they didn't spend a lot of time playing music themselves, but I, I got, at a very early age, I got into it through the school, like a lot of people, and that was fantastic for me. And, and you know, that was very supportive of lessons and things like that. And then maybe as I got into my teenage years, I saw it as a vehicle to, for maybe uh, fraternise with the opposite sex. <laughs> <laughs> we can segue back to that in a little while how you met your yeah. wife or, or, or various ladies in your life early we, on uh, <laughs> well, uh, well you can edit it yeah, a bit which you which you want but yeah that's it's that's definitely i mean it was never the driving force but it was a you know that's i think most musicians would be lying if they said that wasn't a perk of the job right <laughs> As somebody who has kind of an uh, an analytic mind and a, a sort of a, t- a technology sort of centric uh, space now, when you look back at your musical life, especially early on, were you drawn to the creativity of it and the uh, non boundaries of it, or the construct of it, in essence, like the the actual notes and the structure and the form and things like that? What was more in- interesting to you? Yeah, I mean that's that's a really interesting question. I haven't really reflected on that, uh, but it certainly wasn't really the the identity of it. I mean, that's all very was all very foreign to foreign to me because Australia was a and is still a very low populated space, and where I was was as I mentioned a very small community. So you know we didn't have a. I mean, I think when I grew up, Seattle was a thing, right? And that was the scene, the Nirvana Pearl Jam scene. I mean, that was very foreign to me because we didn't have anything like that. Mm. So, I mean, sure, it was part of my identity growing up. I grew my hair like Eddie Vedder and and wanted to look like that. But I mean, it, it was it wasn't something that we were aspiring to because I knew it was a, a long way away from what could happen here in Australia. Uh, it 
I don't remember it being particularly creative either. I, I think the the part that you know now I reflect on it was really was the performance of it all, like in terms of uh, challenging myself to be bigger and better and improve. And so, you know, for many people, that's not what music's about. But I think it was for me, you know, mm-hmm. playing a really hard song on a guitar and then trying to go to the next level and and constantly outdo myself. I, I remember that being a, a real driving force. And, you know, it's changed now um, because really music is now able to be made in ways that it wasn't that common when I was growing up. I mean, you need to go in the studio and Mm. and now I'm fortunate enough to have my own makeshift studio at home where I can play on the music when I like and, and I guess bring my worlds together in terms of the creativity of music and also the Mm. digital side of, of technology. So, I mean, the irony of course is you have less time when you, when you're older to do these things. Did you like playing music? I mean, it sounds like you like playing music more for somebody rather than for yourself. Is that true? Or is it a kind of a a combination of both in some sense? It was definitely that when I was younger, but I think now it's it's much more about just something I want to do that's not not my main job. I think like a lot of people, you can get caught up in in work and and maybe the wrong job, which I, I don't think I, I am in, but I think a decade can go by pretty quickly. So this is, uh, and of course you have children, which we'll talk about, and they quite rightly take the best of your time. So this is an outlet for me now, more around maybe my back catalog or things I've written over the years to to slowly produce them. But of course, it's another skill set, as I, as I said earlier now, that you need to develop. It's not just the playing you yeah, I mean, I could go into a studio, but it's it's a it's quite expensive. So it's it's now I have to kind of learn sound sound engineering on the uh, along the way, which again is just another another thing to learn. But it, it just means progress is a little slower than I'd like at times. <laughs> <laughs> so as you're kind of growing up and you're playing music, and what is that actually? I get the impression from what you wrote to me that that was looking like a a career or a life for you and then somehow that changed what what changed it or what shifted it for you yeah i mean you always are an unreliable witness for these things aren't you when you look back i mean you you, you try and tell yourself a narrative at the time about why you made a certain decision i'm not sure uh, whether I'm reliable or not and how I would relay that to you. But, I mean, it, it was definitely what I wanted to do, no doubt about that, and not just as a, as a kid, you know, into my my 20s for sure. But, you know, you look back now and there was no way, we didn't know it at the time, of course, but there was no way it was ever going to be a, a career for me in the sense that I wanted it to be. I mean, the rock, mm. the era of the rock star was disappeared. I mean, I could have been a session musician. I, I did record for various um, artists at times as well. So that was part of what I did, but it, it probably wasn't the part that I was most attracted to. And then, yeah, I mean, I've got to play with some very good people from other bands, but I think maybe in the end I was pursuing this, this, not so much a dream, but it was an avenue to work in in sport at the same time, which was going to take me overseas. So ultimately, that decision really brought to an end the notion of me, you know, being a rock star, being in a band. And then by the time I'd returned to it, you know, I was well and truly into my career as I know it now. So, yeah, I mean, it's really only been the last couple of years I've picked it right back up, uh, mm-hmm. which do I regret maybe leaving it so long? Sure. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's... I guess the good thing that you see now with the digital age and is that you see people being able to record and play music well into into their their lives or throughout mm-hmm. their whole lives. So this is this is 
fantastic and this is the way music should be i think mm-hmm. do, do you recall your your most poignant rock star moment of your uh, young career <laughs> uh, <laughs> i'm not sure about poignant but uh, <laughs> i was talking to this to my uh, a couple of my friends the other day and they were relaying to me which i'd forgotten that they came to see me at a uh, I mean, I can tell how old I was because it was my my undergraduate uh, completion of my degree. So I must have been about 21 or 22. And I played a gig the night before in inner city Melbourne. And I remember we must have gone and hit the town afterwards. And I I know I showed up straight to the graduation without having been home. So much to the embarrassment of my of my family who were there for the, the, the you know, the shots in my suit, which I certainly wasn't wearing at that point of the morning. So, uh, yeah, maybe that was, that was a, maybe a hallmark moment in the collision of me on my academic journey being, uh, you know, colliding with what I was doing in, in music. So uh, I definitely remember that as a, as a turning point, maybe of when I, when I stopped or started moving towards something different. <laughs> so tell me about your academic journey. How do you start to shape your career early on? what is what is drawing you to what you go to school for and and where you go with it yeah i mean i was a quintessential student a bad bad student through my high school <laughs> i didn't perform that well at all i think you know the various reasons for that i you know immaturity on my part maybe the environment not being challenging enough uh, as well as a relatively new school and perhaps uh, i wasn't in the mold, so to speak, about how you would go from point A to point B in terms of what you would do in a to go into medical school or to law school, things like that. So, you know, that, that manifested itself in immaturity and rebellion, I, I'd imagine, at the time. Uh, so, yeah, and science was what I hated the most. And, you know, <laughs> and you stand here today and it's, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Uh, that That's the path I took in the end. So, yeah, I mean, and then into university, undergraduate, uh, you know, this certainly isn't common knowledge and I don't talk about it that often but I mean I I fell into the course I did through default I mean it was the only thing I could get into at that point I probably had some expectations I was going to perform higher both my own expectations and others uh, at high school and that didn't happen so it was all I could get and then you know like like a lot of us took a couple of years to kind of kick into gear that I actually enjoyed it and was was okay at it and if I put my mind to it I could actually uh, could actually go somewhere with it. So, yeah, it was certainly very humble beginnings. <laughs> I don't think that's an unusual thing. You know, I think it's funny that um, we put – I talk about this a lot now when I mentor people or talk to younger people professionally that there's this pressure point to somehow knowing exactly what you're going to do and that you should be all in from day one. When you look back now at, at that – period of your life how, how do you think it in, in, has in, and maybe you've never thought about it but how do you think it's influenced your ability to be maybe a, a better professional in what you do now having not sort of i have to do this and be you know uh, mark worthy etc mm-hmm. etc et all the time yeah i mean i think again you, you can be an unreliable kind of narrator of your own journey but i i think i would like to think that i've always had drive and hard certainly hard work uh, I've always worked really hard when something's engaged me and so again you know there's been threads through this story already of, of my musical journey sitting there and playing for four hours or five hours a night and so that to me is quite similar to how I work on something in my job now when I'm interested in it mm. and so I would say that's 
that's always been there and and so maybe it was just me realizing that or being engaged i mean it's also your environment i mean i don't beat myself up too much about it i mean i think i'd be interested in you know the people that you've spoken to would maybe have similar stories there's always uh people that shape the way in which they remember that journey, particularly through school and that, that period of time, people that really engage with them and, and they clicked with them and they were able to not so much motivate them, but they, you know, the people that you meet along your journey that you, you go back to in your career and shape you in ways that you maybe don't even realize until a lot long, a lot further mm-hmm. down the track. Well, yeah. unpack that for me for a second. Like, was there somebody that in your, in, in your undergraduate degree or postgraduate that sort of, was there a seminal moment where you kind of said, you know, this is, I want to apply myself in a different way. And I've discovered something that I'm really excited about. And it was because of an influence or was it just a circumstantial? No, I I definitely remember as a really young boy with my music, there was uh, the guitar teacher that my parents, you know, put around me was, yeah, very. That's all. All he was interested in. And so I remember, you know, all he wanted to do was was music and talk about it and very obscure things I'd never heard of before. And so, you know, that fed off all of the desire I had to to be the as good as I could be in that area. And so, yeah, he had a, a lasting effect on my career uh, at, at the time playing music. And but academically, it really wasn't until late in the piece, I, I think. It's not always the case, but my my PhD advisor really influenced, interestingly enough, not my work so much and not even me, my approach to my work, but I think my view of science. Uh, he came from a maths background. And so, again, really shaped my view of what was wrong in science, uh, how I would do things differently, uh, pushed me into more the analytical side of of sports science, which at the time was not common anywhere. Uh, I mean, it was just post-Moneyball, but that hadn't even made its way to Australia at that, at that stage. So I think my timing was serendipitous there. But the point is he he shaped that in through his attitudes and through the way he approached things rather than any direct training per se. And so it was a nice kind of blend of that. So, again, these are these are things that, you know, you're impossible to recreate, aren't they? Because the environment that people put themselves in is, is so complex at any one time. And, of course, things that have happened before also influence what happens in the past. And I, I was probably making up for lost time as well at that stage. You know, uh, I... I was an older PhD student. I, I think I finished around 30, which is not ancient, but it's it's older than a lot of the students I was going through. And so I think that was also motivating me as well. Uh, that was an intrinsic motivation, obviously, to really to get ahead and, and make up for a little bit of lost time. Mm. Before that, I guess, identification of what you wanted to do, what, what were you, like where was your car driving before you decided I'm going to take this journey actually and go over here. Like, what did you think you were going to do with this? Because <laughs> going through a master's and now a PhD, yeah. you would sort of contemplate that you had some kind of directive thought process, but then you kind of pivoted in some sense. So. Yeah. Uh, I, it, to me, it's a, uh, it's, uh, you know, my 20, my twenties is a, like a lot of people, it's a little hazy at times, I suppose for different reasons, but certainly what I mean by hazy in terms of my direction, because I don't think I had much really, uh, I was doing things again, this comes back to that wanting to be productive and wanting to 
perform, so to speak, but I, I didn't have a clear plan on what I wanted to do. I, I think at that stage I was very interested in working in elite sport like a lot of, you know, young guys are, uh, and certainly around the gym, again, which, you know, we see that still certainly in this country and I think in the U.S. as well, uh, well, not not Spain, but Australia, where I live, mm. not the, <laughs> the country I'm talking to you from today. Well, maybe true here as well. But yeah, we want to. The job everyone wanted to do was work in the gym with elite athletes, and so that's certainly what I I vaguely wanted to do. I didn't really know how to get there. It was very um, unattainable. Probably more unattainable now for most people because it's mm. so competitive. So. Yeah, I did things. I did my masters. I I went for jobs overseas. I did some uh, small work overseas as well. But ultimately, it was the decision to move my life up for a long period of time from where I was in one part of the country to the other side of the country, and and really cut myself off from family support and friends and all those things that can make you a little bit comfortable at times, mm-hmm. and and really throw myself into the PhD. So that was the turning point at that stage because I yeah I was working and doing things but I was you know comfortable at times I'd say. Mm. Where do you meet your wife Adriana at this point? Is it after your PhD or during or? No, during, uh, towards the end. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, interesting story in, in herself. I mean, born in London, but uh, grew up for her teenage years in Mexico, mm. uh, mother from Mexico city, father from, from London. Uh, so yeah. And then the next 10 years of her life, she moved to Australia. So I, I met her in Sydney, uh, on the other side of the country around one of my, my trips that I was doing with my work and sport at the time, also doing my PhD. And, uh, yeah, it, it didn't take too long. And, you know, maybe under a year we, we realized we were the right, right for each other. And, uh, she decided to stay, uh, you know, in Australia. So she, yeah, she's still here now, obviously, uh, with myself, but we make sure we get back to Mexico when we can as well. What what has she challenged or balanced in you, um, and in, in helping you be become who you have become? <laughs> well, lots of things. I think that's always the case. Uh, you can to, to, she can tolerate me for a start. No, I mean, uh, and that's 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 in all seriousness. So no, I mean, it's it's. Yeah, it's funny when you think about that type of thing, and I, I am sure you've reflected on it yourself. I mean, there's things that you uh, attracted to someone in because of that compatibility. Again, I definitely can be difficult to deal with at times. So I think she has that ability to tolerate it, but also keep me very honest in terms of knowing there's a line that I, I, I should not cross, and maybe that's a reflection of her kind of cultural background as well. I'd, I'd imagine. Uh, so that's part of it, but then also we are. Uh, very similar in certain ways as well. So uh, obviously we have similar interests, which is always help, help, helpful, but also, you know, it may be our not, not so good traits as well. So it's funny how those things can actually bring people together at times, uh, you know, the stubbornness and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I, I probably need to reflect on that more, as you can tell from my mm-hmm. response. But but certainly, uh, yeah, it was it was a... Uh, it's very unlike a something that I would normally say, but it was just that, that click at the time because um, I normally overanalyze everything. But uh, in that case, it was a, a click. And we've really never um, never had any issues, in any, anything, although Germany, I know we're still really early on in our journey around, you know, nine, ten years or so. But, yeah, it's it's never been – it's been the one constant in my life for that period really. 
You, you've mentioned a couple of times, so I'm going to unpack it, but you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. But you mentioned this idea of being sort of hard to deal with or being a little uh, gnarly or uh, or some people's interpretation of you is that you're maybe called stoic or what have you. Uh, mm. Where does that come from in you? And is it something that you um, that you wish others did not consider in you or you thought is a misinterpretation of who you are in some sense? Uh, I don't. I don't think it's a misinterpretation necessarily. But uh, uh, again, people learn how to uh, deal with it. I suppose. Uh, I mean, I think it, it has its good uh, aspects and bad aspects. Of course, uh, you know, at times I, I should be more carefree. But I think it's a function of again the personality traits we've talked about already in terms of being very much. Uh, driven and motivated and, and thinking about performance a lot more than I should at the to the detriment of you know relaxing more and all those things but at the same time that then means you hold people to a, to high standards as well and it also means that you probably take on more things than you should and that of course causes you to get frustrated with uh, when things don't move as quick as you would like and so again there's that ability that you expect more from others, but you also expect more from yourself. And that's, that's going to be exhausting at times as well. So I think all those things mean that you're also, you know, tired more than you should be and, and grumpier and all those things that happen. So, uh, and then of course there's all those intangibles. There's, there's what you experienced growing up in the genetic component, which, you know, we, we can't really measure, but uh, yeah, I, I'm working on it. <laughs> working on it. <laughs> We're all a work in progress for sure. I'm going to use that segue to go to the thing that I read. To every, I don't know if you've, you you said you've listened to a couple of the podcasts, but I'm not sure if you've ever encountered that. I read from this book called The Day You Were Born, and it's kind of like uh, your purpose. So mm-hmm. you were uh, October 11th, correct? Mm-hmm. So you were a Libra too. So your purpose is to use your spirit to avoid the decadence and excess of life to focus on your ability to help others without being pulled off your path. You are unique. And if that is not fulfilled, then something has been lost. Martha Graham. The two is always unique and matched with Libra. They've got a soul that has its own expression. Libra twos feel a great need to contribute something to the world. Their desire to be used for a higher purpose can make them great leaders or codependence. The keys here are are a strong sense of self and a spiritual base. If ego hasn't found its place, the need to please may inhibit their true talents of this soul and send them on a path acquiring possessions instead of healing themselves and others. As a child, they were either spoiled and indulged or ignored, and they learned how to expose their truth. Depression, mood swings, and an inability to trust could be problems. They are stronger than they appear and more stubborn than most. Their charm and ease with people masks a more complex person. At some time, they will be prodded to come out of their shells and shine. They have a great deal to offer the world, and if they can be beyond, can go beyond their fear and reach out to others. Wow, I might have to get you to send me that. That's, I mean, there's a lot of things in there, and there's a, a couple of words that you use that I think we've we've stumbled across already. So, no, that's it. that's really interesting, and I, I think the part that resonated for me the most there, well, quite a quite a bit of it, but the, the start there really in terms of, yeah, I, I think that's probably a part of my personality that people sometimes do miss in terms of that, uh, and it certainly affects me at time to time, like in terms of really wanting to please others and and help others. Um, my problem is obviously, 
often the delivery of that is maybe not done in a way that people always appreciate at the time. But it's definitely a major part of my personality that has, again, does take its toll on you because, yeah, you, you obviously can't do that. And also mm. it does take your time up as well. You can't please everybody. So, mm. but yeah, a lot of the other things you said as well, that's, that was very interesting. Uh, so thanks for that. You're welcome. I can send it to you. Um, so what do you, what do you, at some point, do you fall in love with what the spirit of what you're doing? And and if so, what is, what is it that you're in love with doing now? Obviously you're deep into analytics and, you know, all the sort of the analyzing things and decision-making and stuff. What, what do you fall in love with in that? Yeah, it's definitely changed. I mean, we just talked about helping and having an impact, and that's still definitely true. Uh, but at this stage of the career now, it's it's moving towards, and I don't think it's this stage of my career. It's probably more like this stage of my life, I think, mm-hmm. that I'm more into certainly impact still, having that as big a picture impact as as possible, but also trying to shape, and this is related to impact, but shape the way people view and interact with sport on big picture ideas, on big picture uh, philosophies, uh, practice. And that's really tricky, obviously, as, as one person, and you, you could never do it. So it's finding those networks and finding those abilities for people to to really, that, that paradigm shifting work, that's really what it, uh, is interesting to me at the moment. I probably don't know exactly the one main area at this point that I'll I'll try and do that in. I mean, there's a couple of thing, major things I'm working on at the moment, global projects. Uh, but again, it's it's very it's very little to do with sport and very very little to do with anything. That's just the area I've happened to found, find myself in. So it's much more around how could we make a really large scale paradigm shifting change for that particular part of sport to make people's lives a lot more enjoyable and a lot more impactful and also improve the sport along the way. So, mm. yeah, I mean, lofty stuff, I guess, but, <laughs> at the th- you know, that's, that's what interests me. What, what are some of the, um, those paradigm shifts you're trying to uh, um, expose or, or uh, nudge for people that maybe people aren't aware of or that they are aware of, but don't really understand to the degree that they should. Quick break here. We'll be back with our guest in just a moment. We've been lucky at Leave Your Mark since the very beginning almost that Matrix Fitness has come on as our main sponsor and they remain steadfast to this program because they know how it serves the community at large the same way they serve the human performance community as well. And Basically, if you need something in the world of human performance, whether it's to build a performance facility or training facility or fitness facility, whether it's a home facility you're trying to build or a hybrid facility out of the garage to work with clients, it doesn't really matter what the actual goal is. They have a product for you. They have the equipment and they have the service capacity to make sure that you're getting what you need when you need it for what you need it for. And that's the key is they are a full service organization. They are worldwide. They are one of the biggest Uh, equipment manufacturers in the world for human performance and they remain dedicated to bringing great products every day to you the consumer so that you can do what it is you need to do which is take care of your clients and or take care of yourself i encourage you to go over to team up with matrix.ca and check out their products today ask them the questions you need answers to and they will do their best to take care of you 
Thanks again, Matrix, for taking care of LYM. Do you struggle with finding the reason why your client keeps coming back to you with the same injury problem or why your client that you're training is having limitations in their performance? Do you find yourself challenged with how to progress the exercises that you're going to do or regress them or understand what actually is going on with their movement and what may need to be tweaked or changed or cleaned up so that they can function more appropriately and perform better? Do you find it challenging sometimes to work in or with other practitioners and professionals so that you can create a solution for the clients or the team or the organization that you're with? Well, reconditioning is all about providing you with an operating system for navigating those environments and those situations. It is a fundamental process that scripts and brings together the worlds of therapy and performance in uh, a way that no one else is really doing. It brings together applied neurology, the foundation of uh, why we move and how we move, and gives you the tools to make the changes and understand where you can take your tool set and be more tactical with it and get greater intervention uh, outcomes and better outcomes in general for your athletes and for your clients in general. So this is not just a system for athletes. It's a system for every human being. And we also believe that every human being is some form of athlete. So we need to look at the human being, what it is that the human wants to do and take care of business when it comes to getting them prepared to do what they want to do. So if you're interested in upgrading your professional practice, run over to reconditioninghq.com today and take a look at our offerings. Uh, We have a beautiful course curriculum and program that takes you from point A to point Z or Z if you like Z better than Z and helps you take care of uh, all the people that you need to take care of on a daily basis. A reminder that the doors are open for application to the LYM Life Lab that begins Right at the start of May, and this month we'll be taking applications, sorting out who's going to be a part of this program. We want people who are dedicated to self-reflection and growth and contribution and want to make a change in their world and be the best they can be. I suggest you head over to lymlab.com today. Check out the program on the LYM Life Lab page. If you want to, there are two free downloads there that you can jump on um, just to get you started with instigating change in your world and uh, working on your mindset and other skills that we're going to be dumping into and having a lot of fun with in the program. There's a lot to it. Uh, if you read the fine print, so to speak, on that page, the Leave Your Mark Life Lab page, you'll see some of the different things that you're going to be learning, the things we're going to be doing, and how we're going to operate through this next year. I want to uh, invite anybody who wants to instigate change in their lives and create the best situation for themselves under the guidance of mentorship and community. Jump on it today, uh, head over there and apply, and if you've got any questions, just feel free to PM me. Take care. We're back. Enjoy the podcast. Well, the part of analytics that interests me the most is decision making, and that's obviously affects just about everything we do in our in our lives in a structured and unstructured way. So, it's really that is, and if we dig down into decision making a little bit more, it's it's really how people spend their time at work, and so 
that's what I'm most interested in sport because particularly I'm really fortunate probably more than, yeah, almost anyone I know. I get to work in 15 or so sports at any one time. So that's just the nature, again, of where I of where I was. Like I mentioned earlier, I was at that stage of my career that that blending of sports performance with analytics wasn't really being done in Australia and probably not that much globally either. And so that's resulted in opportunities for me. And so it's really allowed for me to see what dogma and tradition exists in different sports and go in and kind of challenge that in a almost a naive way in terms of why are you doing this? And there's some real commonalities across all sports, as you might imagine. And then other sports have, every sport has their own small, small nuance, but it's really that if we're talking about it from an, uh, you know, overarching sense, it's really challenging that because as you might imagine, like the, the flow on effects from fixing up or improving the way people work, athletes or practitioners, doesn't matter who means they, going to be more efficient at what they do and they're going to probably enjoy it more uh, and probably perform more and maybe be more curious, more challenged as well. Because again, they, they freeing up time and they, they have that ability to go and maybe do some things that they haven't had time to do. So you can see that ties into all those things that we've talked about already. It's, it's a very underlying, almost unhealthily. So underlying kind of thread of productivity through it all, uh, which is, yeah, again, unhealthy at times, but I think that, that that's where the personality meets the 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 work side of of what I do. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'm inter- I, I'm going to use a a bit of a, a story to sort of segue into this topic a little bit um, with you. But um, I was at a conference one time, and somebody told a story. I don't even know if the story is true, but it's a great uh, analogy for this kind of thing. And the story goes something to the effect of that the uh, U.S. Um, uh, military w- w- with their um, long range guns, which would shoot a, a round and then wait a certain amount of time to shoot another round. And they could move more rounds more quickly if they wanted to, but they always followed a certain pattern. And somebody asked, well, why do you do that? And and so the answer was, well, we've always done it. We did it, you know, this way since the, the beginning of our, you know, having guns, et cetera. Then they went back and they looked at it and they recognized that the reason why they counted these number of seconds afterwards was when in the early stages of, of using guns, they used to be attached to horse pulls. And so if they r- shot around the horse wall jump, they'd have to settle the horses and then take an amount of time and then shoot it again. So there's these traditional sort of approaches to the way somebody does thing that nobody really ever questions, but become sort of an, an indoctrinated faith of the, the religion of sports, so to speak, or the religion of, of life. And I'm kind of curious, what have you run into in your process of introducing AI into different sports environments that is kind of a similar story where the question has never been at, why do we do this? And we never really thought about it this way. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll try and be strategic on how I respond that so I don't dob in any sports or don't uh, make sure that they they look bad. But you come back. I mean, before I answer, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but before I answer that, I mean, I mean, I think when you said then around the answer to that question is we have always done it this way. What I find is a lot of the time when that's not the answer, it actually still is the answer. So it's not the answer they give you, but uh, they, they, they know that's what, they want, what you want them to say and they don't, but it invariably is. Uh, or, or no one was around it when that decision was made and nobody remembers why it was done, which is common as well. 
the the other thing that when you were th- speaking then that I I noticed a lot, and you made me think of when you went from the horse, uh, the, the the description of the the horse to, compared to what we see now is uh, it's amazing. We're very much at the early stages of this as as humans, I, I suppose, in terms of our adoption of what we know as technology today. I mean, you could argue we've been using technology for thousands of years, but it's amazing how quickly, it, incredible how quickly it's become our master as opposed to the other way around. And, mm. you know, I read some really interesting books, you know, from 20 or 30 years ago. I, I think Don Norman comes to mind who I think consulted Apple for a long time, but he he wrote some great books in the 80s around the importance of human-centred technology. And it's incredible to see how this hasn't originated. This hasn't developed for us mm. at all. Mm. Uh, we have jobs in sport now that are solely set up for people to manage technology and nobody really knows a lot of the time about what we're getting from them and how it impacts on that decision-making I talked about. So, I mean, this is really interesting to me and it's kind of ties into that, that question we talked about, about earlier. But in answer to your question, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I talk about the Socratic method a lot, which I, I think is really can make you the most painful person in the room a lot, but almost saying why and then why maybe three, four, five, six times again. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's that, that childhood curiosity again, isn't it? Uh, so why do we practice at this time? Why do we practice in this way? Uh, why does this player get pigeonholed into a certain position at a, at a very early stage of their life and and not really explored for other traits that they may have that would, would place them in a good position in another sport even or a different mm. position? Uh I mean, there's so many examples, and I you can tell I'm being deliberately um, uh, vague a little bit here. So <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to get anyone uh, offside, but um, maybe I'll, I'll think of one, and I'll uh, maybe think of a team I worked for a long time ago. <laughs> well, let's let's use actually um, sort of visualization of future um, state for a second. Like, if you could envision sort of. With your reference point of today, what would be a perfect operating paradigm in a sport performance model with, with the marriage of of technology and the human, um, you know, foible of making decisions mm. and, and learning for through failure, et cetera? What would be that marriage or what would that marriage look like in your viewpoint? Yeah, and I think this is part of the reason – why this is so difficult is because I, I, I really struggle to answer that question as well because it's contingent on mul- multiple things happening at, at once. So as we know, sport as a general is really focusing on the the here and now. I mean, even organisations that do long-term planning well in terms of management and long-term coaches, they really are only talking three, four, five, maybe ten years as opposed to other industries that, that need to plan a lot more uh, in in a more lengthier terms than that. So it's really hard. And the biggest reason it's hard is because I don't know if people realise this is the biggest reason, but I think this definitely is the biggest reason is because we don't know what technological landscape we're going to be working in at that Mm. stage. And so this is when people talk about AI, this is the biggest challenge. So there are all sorts of decisions that we could offset or, or give to AI, let's call it AI. I don't 
I don't know if I always know what that term means, but to, to automation um, from computing when, and technology now. I mean, that that could be done a lot more than it is right now. But the interesting thing about sport is most sports right now, that they see the opportunities with that area in the areas that we shouldn't be handing over. So things like medical treatment and things that ethically have some serious ramifications for us uh, that maybe open us up to legal ramifications as well. And the, the reasons why sports chase those things are obvious. They're impactful if we can get those decisions right. But the motivation is quite different. Humans, uh, I find in sport in particular, uh, probably the same in other industries as well, they focus on that making the better decision or being or accuracy is a word that comes to mind uh, in terms of their decisions. But the gains right now for sport are in efficiency, but it's nowhere near as interesting to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And so that that's something I, I see, and it, it is a source of frustration for me because, of course, they are interchangeable as well. If you make yourself more efficient, you have more time potentially and mental energy to go in and focus on those those big rocks, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting piece to unpack a little bit, actually, because um, one of my personal observations over my career is that in sport performances, we we generally, whether it's in the coaching sphere or in the performance coaching sphere, lean towards um, volume as a form of uh, s- successfully negotiating our raison d'etre say so and what i mean by that is that people will defer to doing more than less so that they are sure they have done enough and everybody struggles with whether it's being in the off being at the rink or the stadium or the field earlier than everybody and later than everybody is or have we done enough work on the pitch have we done enough work on the court what is enough practice what is not enough practice and everybody leans towards the volume centric side of that because that you can't question you can't question somebody for not doing enough if they've been there since 6 a.m and they stayed until 8 p.m whereas you can when they decided well i'm going to to your word uh, if i can use it efficient if you be, defined your efficiency and said this is is enough and you don't have success then the question always becomes did you do enough and i think that's the biggest struggling point for most of sport is and it's what burns out a lot of people in the culture is because we culturalize ourselves into believing that that's that's how we succeed what's what's your thought on that based on some of the work you've done so far yeah i think there's two observations based on what you said then. I, it reminds me of a person at a professional club I worked at a, a while ago who was from the, the HR area, people and culture area, and they, they were the best person I met in my career at exactly what you're talking about uh, then. They, they used to put a massive amount of effort and time into ensuring that the culture, and I think they were successful when they were there, the, the, the culture was... If someone's not at their desk, someone's not on the court or not on the field, have faith that their position description, the way they, their role is described, the way they are evaluated is sufficient. It's We've put a lot of time into it. If they're not there, there's a reason why they're not there. And unfortunately, I think after they, they left that organisation, I think things regressed back to what we know in sport. But I, I remember that and I re, I've always remembered and I always felt like that's the way that sport should operate because... 
we want our best and brightest involved in sport. We don't want them getting burned out. And it happens. I see it all of the time. I, I've had, had staff and I've seen colleagues as well. And there's a couple right now that I know that are on the, you know, on the cusp, I would imagine, outside looking in. And this is all inter- this is all um, this is all interacting, isn't it? I mean, in terms of if uh, I've said it a couple of times, if they are more efficient and they they aren't doing eighty-hour weeks, they're going to be more creative. They're going to have ideas that maybe can take that organisation from where they are now to where they could be. And so, again, this is it's all it's all linked uh, in that in that respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh... I have found anyways, at least at the highest level of performance, which is an irony of it. Um, as I looked into it before I went into my career, I always thought, oh, it must be the highest innovating space and that people are always creating new ideas and directions. But the truth of it is that it's hard to innovate in performance spaces because of the risk associated with that. Mm-hmm. Like if you there are probably a thousand coaches who did this style of something like a a great example is bill walsh was the famous coach of the san francisco 49ers back in the early 80s and and uh, he started running what they call the west coast offense and so this was basically in, in pro football you know every quarterback did a drop you know seven step drop and threw the ball and now he started running kind of a rollout pattern and you threw to the to the flats and all kinds of things nobody was doing but he happened to have a great quarterback in Joe Montana. And so he won a bunch of Super Bowls. Well, the West Coast offense became something everybody started to do. But if you don't have that sort of moment in time where you have the right player to, to run the system and the system works, then Bill Walsh might be a faint memory and that system may have never existed, right? So you have to have the person yeah. who's willing to take a risk on their career. And at the same time, you have to have that little moment of success in order to actually have that innovation occur. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a great anecdote, and it it also a reminder of just how complex sport is, and when we really only measure a small component of all the things that go into making a performance occur, it's a good example there in terms of you know the commonality there with having a great quarterback, and and I think this is where it's it's quite interesting with the analytical revolution and in terms of also people with scientific backgrounds, the impact that they can have in terms of. Uh, creating a narrative uh, around why something happened and it's an opportunity but it's also a risk and it's also quite scary because there is the opportunity for that to be manipulated Mm. Uh, we just got again comes back to what i said we want to keep our best and brightest and maybe our, our best and nicest and most ethical people in sport who tell that narrative in the in the right way um and then I also wanted to pick up on something you said around the risk, and I think that's that's true as well. That's related here in, in terms of as well, in terms of saying, well, we're doing something a little bit different, and if it goes wrong, of course, people always remember the failures as opposed to the the positive stories. But, again, mm-hmm. I think that's an opportunity for shifting that narrative as well about we can very much choose in our sporting organisations about what we want to define success by and, how, and what we measure as, around that as well. And, again, I, I think... Obviously, there's a lot of grey that people can hide in there as well and also some of the things that really matter we can't measure. And, you know, the reverse is true as well. The old, uh, I think it's an Einstein quote actually. That's, that's, it's definitely true in sport. But I think the opportunity in sports are in those areas that 
yes, there's some risk in, but it, it's not as risky as the tactical piece that you mentioned then so much. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see things, and I think some organisations are starting to recognise this now, in areas that are less risky but very impactful. So learning, you know, how do athletes learn? Mm-hmm. How do we know that they've learned? And which part of what we delivered as a coach actually was responsible for that learning? Was it just the actual environment or was it a specific stimulus that we gave them in a a meeting or in the way that we spoke with them or a cue? And how do we know that they retain that? Uh, I I became very interested in that question when I was working in golf, when I saw golfers uh, do a a lot of work back home for a month and then disappear for six months and said, well, did they retain all that work that we did? We we don't know. Uh, (laughs) And then it's not just retain, did it transfer into performance? I mean, these are huge questions that, Mm -hmm. uh, yes, there's risk in in answering or spending too much time on, but I, I think less risk than in some of the, yeah, the areas like that you talked about, like the medical area that I talked about or the tactical area that you mm-hmm. mentioned. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, I'm going to segue a little bit here in that um, your journey, um, as in some sense circuitous as it has been, um, how does it inform you as a father with your own kids when you're when you're now watching your kids grow up? Are you trying to be sort of more mitts off and let them discover or are you and have faith in what their process will be? Or are you more sort of I, I, I feel like they have to go to school and they have to do this and they have to where, where does your mind lay now as a dad versus the, the person who, who walked the journey? No, it's definitely more the former, and that might change. I expect it to change. Uh, I think my mentality when they were younger was uh, I needed to work hard to relate to them because it was so different to my work at uh, the work I did uh, out on the road, and a lot of that was on the road at the time. And then obviously, and that has happened as I've probably got better at being a father, and also as I've got older, I have been able to relate to them better. Uh, the irony is, my youngest daughter. Maybe I'm a different person to what I was uh, when I had the other the children, but um, you know, we we are very close. Uh, not that we're not, I'm not with the other two, but maybe I have grown into it after after three. So, uh, but yeah, it's funny. I, I'm sure it will change in terms of. The academic side, I, I mean, I, I would hope that I don't push them into into decisions and begin to go, because that wasn't my journey. Uh, but I, I think, you know, it's I've got a nine-year-old daughter who's uh, clearly very academically orientated uh, right now, and if she continues to be, it'll be interesting if she decides to not go that traditional path on how I react. So I can't answer that, but I hope I react appropriately. Uh, <laughs> you know, I feel like I'm getting better at it, but it's... You know, uh, as you know yourself, it's it's a journey, and it, I think consistency is a big the big challenge I have, and I, we know that's that's really important. Consistency in the way that you create an environment for them and how you respond to mm. scenarios that happen. That's the thing I I am hyper aware of at the moment in my own journey. How have you negotiated? You mentioned in your um, note to me that you're often in Spain, where you are right now. Or I'm talking to you, so you go for a number of weeks or months uh, each year to work um, or a different time. So how have you negotiated that coming back to the terms consistency where you, you leave the family unit for a while and then come back? How, how have you been able to make that work for you or how have you, how has it challenged you? I mean, it's, it's a challenge and especially as they get older, because and I don't, this is certainly not true, but it's, as you can tell from my last response, 
I probably felt it to be true, even though it's not, which is you feel like you're missing more as they get older. And I know for mm. some parents it might be the opposite. They they really want to hold on to those younger years. Uh, but for me, and I, I imagine there's a point where that changes as well, right, when they turn into teenagers or, or go into their adult life. But it, right now it's probably harder than it has been in the past because they're at an age where we're interacting in a different way that I'm more comfortable with than I have in, in the past. So I think that's mm. what I would say about that. And in terms of the consistency, the other thing I suppose I am aware of which I would imagine is common with people that travel is that you, when you return, you want to be just enjoying things and just uh, interacting with them in a really positive, in a, in a, a play like manner as well. But they also need a father there who's going to be doing other things that a father does as well. And so mm. you need to make sure that you, uh, yeah, being consistent about, yes, enjoy the fact that you're back in the country and you, you can spend time together, but they also need, a proper father around them who's going to be balanced and consistent as we talked about. And, 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 you, and my wife needs that as well, of course. Mm-hmm. On the reverse side of that, uh, just for those listening who end, who end up doing consulting or try consulting, I know it's a, it's a different animal to walk into a performance um, team or environment and impose and I, I probably the word impose is not correct, but to be imposed into the environment because somebody has invited you in to go in and consult on some some manner of expression. And how have you handled um, that inter, that inter, interface and, and and making yourself a part of the space so that you can get the most out of it, but you're also not uh, becoming a distraction to the space when you've gone in to, to work with these teams and these environments to do the work you do. Yeah, I, I'm very aware of that. I, I think I put a lot of time in that before I started to do any work because the view you just mentioned is a external view I had of people working in that space. Uh, again, and I'll use another term that I am sometimes accused of, I'll use two, sceptical, which I'm quite happy being called, but cynical as well at times and maybe not as happy to wear that badge, but it is true from time to time. And so, yeah, I mean, I saw a lot of... Uh, people that were doing well out of this that perhaps shouldn't be worst case were still people that perhaps were snake oil salesmen altogether and then other people that were were really trying to have an impact but maybe didn't have weren't organized enough to be to be frank about how they went about it and so that was a really important thing for me when I started doing that work was having a structure behind what I did that we could lean on and also measure success and measure what I'd done and the role I'd played in that. And so, again, mm. you can see this comes back to that structure and that uh, analytical background that I had. Uh, I, I did not want to leave an organisation and say, well, they've spent that time on on this guy. We don't know exactly what we got from that. And mm. I think if I thought I'd done it well, I, I would have been able to have an impact well above and beyond the staff that are already there, not because they weren't good but because I'd had that structure and, you know, I don't see that a lot in sport. I think sometimes some places actually see it as a negative and it takes the fun perhaps out of, particularly in, in team sports, takes the fun out of, of being a team sport athlete. Mm. But to me, that's that's something that's worked well. I mean, it's, it doesn't work everywhere. Some sports don't want that. They're not culturally ready for it, particularly mm. sports that have a lot of tradition around coaching uh, and maybe a large number of coaches. 
uh, that can that can be a problem as well. Although not all, uh, mm. yeah. I mean, every sport is different. <laughs> That's. I'd love to finish sort of on that, and then I'll, I'll have one more question for you after. But I heard that word, the fun out of of the joy out of, and I mean, I think every athlete plays. I mean, most athletes. There are some who don't, but. Uh, per Andre Agassi's book, if you've ever read it, but the yeah. most athletes play because of the joy of the game and love playing. And, and a lot of times when us performance practitioners come in and start being serious about the stuff they got to do to prepare, there is a, you know, a challenging dichotomy there between those two, you know, goals in essence. And, and yeah. so how, how have you negotiated bringing what you bring to the table and letting the athlete and, and the coach still have fun, but at the same time, informing them in a way that allows them to, to explore and be successful. Yeah. Well, this is the great paradox because it, it I'm not sure I've had as much success doing this as I would like, but theoretically, if you are able to measure something that you've implemented and and you're organised in the way you do that and you maybe semi-automated that through technology and things like that, again, I've mentioned a couple of times, that should not only free up time, but it should also allow you to focus in on the parts of what you're implementing in your high-performance environment that are having the greatest effect. And most of the time, uh, even though people need to sit down and think about it sometimes, most of the time that's actually the stuff that's fun. I mean, let's use an example in terms of depending on which theoretical view you want to, you can call it representative design or specific practice or game-like practice. I mean, depending, doesn't really matter which, which approach you subscribe to, most of the evidence points to that is going to help you the most in terms of improving you in, in the team sports, those skilled athletic team sports. And that's the most fun. That's why people play sport. They want to they want to train like that. They don't necessarily want to sit there and do repetitive actions over and over again. And so if we have evidence around that, well, then we should base our program around that. And so, again, this is the... This is the, I guess, the argument I make a lot. If you're actually just a bit of an organized and you don't need to be the coach to do that, maybe someone else can, can help you with that, that allows you to really drill in on the stuff that's having the impact, which is invariably the fun stuff. Now, I, mean, I know that's not true for every sport. I know if you're an endurance runner, you've got to get volume in. I know there's there's those things. And that may not always be fun, but a lot of those, I, and I probably have a team sport bias because that's what I know best, but I, I do think this is where... And I gave a talk on it to a, a national sporting league in Australia last week. I, I think this is where the coach and the analyst can really work together better moving forward. They can provide that evidence. Uh, and I'm a little surprised that a lot of coaches haven't done that already. They've taken up that opportunity to make themselves look good, I suppose, by what they're doing. Hmm. Very interesting. Last question, sir. If you were to uh, run into yourself uh at that graduation morning in shorts and a t-shirt after partying all night, what would you say to that guy about the life he's going to live moving forward? Well, I probably would have told him to get his act together. <laughs> like uh, because like I'm your a, dad did or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, funnily, funnily enough, I never really got that message from my parents, um, <laughs> which was really good of them. But I probably would say that. But again, I, the funny thing is I don't know whether – like I think I used the term "making it for lost time" earlier, and I, I don't know whether I'd be in a rapid, you know, a substantially different position. Uh, maybe I just would have taken long or, or moved there at a slower rate. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I might have said that, but I might not have been right. <laughs>
No second guessing. No second guessing, right? Correct. Sam, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for taking an hour with me. I appreciate your time, and I hope it was uh, pleasant for you as well. So. I was going to say thank you, uh, thank you, because it was uh, enjoyable, and you put me on the spot there a couple of times, and uh, I appreciate you taking some interest in my story. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pay, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.